Acts 8, 26 through 38. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasures. He had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning seated in his chariot, and he was reading from the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah, the prophet, and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. This is one of my favorite um, accounts in, in the biblical narrative. Because it's, it's, uh, it's reflective of that thing that happens if, like, the more you read Scripture or the more you encounter Christ at all in the Scriptures or in your daily life. What we expect from, uh, like, an increased knowledge of something is familiarity. Is as we come along and we, we know something more intimately, uh, more completely, we have more knowledge of something, we get more comfortable and more familiar with that thing. But that's really not the case. With the Lord. Uh, the more we find out about him, the more we say things like, really? The more we read about his, about, about his interaction with scripture, the more we dive into the scriptures, the more we find ourselves confounded uh, at who God is. Because he's not knowable the way most things or people are knowable. There's just endless mystery uh, in the Lord. And so this, this encounter... This moment in the beginning of, of, of who we are as a church, in fact, as this early church, I think frames for us uh, what's something actually that this congregation has done well for seven and a half years uh, in terms of cultural engagement. Uh, and so we're going we're gonna to talk about this. We're going to read through this story a couple times uh, and talk about what some folks would call cultural engagement and, and what I would simply call uh, living like Christ in the world. And so I'm going to pray and then uh, I'm going to teach some. Lord, thanks for your word. Thanks for your word revealed in scripture. Thanks for your word revealed uh, in our lives. Thanks for speaking at all. Uh, May we recognize at any time at all uh, we receive something from you. It has been given as a gift. You don't owe us anything. You uh, you didn't do it because you had to. You desire to communicate with your people. Uh, And as often as we avoid it, as often as we misuse it, as often as it gets missed as often as it just sort of sits on the table or, uh, or a desk or uh, a shelf for months and months and months, uh, you continue to speak, you continue to show up um, in your word and in our lives because you want to commune 
with us. So commune with us this morning. May your spirit speak. Amen? My name is Justin McRoberts. I'm a, uh, a singer-songwriter, uh, but that's not all of who I am. I, I, I could do a whole thing on who I am, but that's not much of a sermon. Uh, I, I've been playing music for, for 12 months professionally. 12 months. I'm terrible. Uh, for about 12 years professionally. Uh, and travel, I've traveled the country and, and outside the country off and on for a long time, but at the same time, uh, in 1999, when I started doing this, 98, 99, there was about this like six to eight month period where three things uh, uh, happened um, in my life. I, I started a music career, I got married, and I planted a church. Uh, oh, and so that's called overcommitment. Uh, it was something I, something I majored in at St. Mary's College in Moraga. Uh, I was an English and philosophy major uh, with a minor in overcommitment. Uh, it's like, hey, there are things that must be done, let's just do them all now. Uh, and it's been a great, great, great uh, um, span of time, uh, the, the whole 12 years. And one of the great things about being um, this pastoral figure in my home church in Concord called Shelter has actually been, um, when you plant a church, you end up running into people who are planting churches. It's kind of like you buy a Volkswagen and all of a sudden, like, you notice everyone else has a Volkswagen. Uh, it's really like that. And so uh, getting, to know, uh, getting to know Albert and the rest of the staff here over the last many, many years We've had these very, uh, very interesting parallel histories, uh, and so I've really enjoyed uh, my relationship with, with this congregation. I hardly feel like a guest. Uh, I'm definitely not treated like one. And uh, that's a joke. <laughs> Kidding. Um, I'm, I'm not treated like one in, in the best sense. Uh, and so uh, I, I love that I get to speak into things here that... Um, I know are happening. I don't, I don't feel like I'm coming in and I have something. I'm just going to teach something and we'll see where it goes. But I have some sense of what God has been up to with you guys uh, and to know a little bit about your history. The conversation that's happening like, nationally right now in America, is, and, and some of you guys are familiar with, the, with some of these words, but this notion of missionality. And like, people are waking, waking up to this notion of being on mission in your life that, um, that central to the Christian life is... is actively being engaged with the world around you. And, and for if, you've, if you've been around Regen for any period of time, you kind of have to say, uh, duh. Yeah, we just had a cop on stage because we need them to do what we do. Uh, that, I mean, you guys, are, you guys have for a long time been engaged. In, you, you do church in Oakland. Oakland is a town that people are afraid of. Oakland is a town that people don't, like, it's, this is a hard place when people, when I, when I, the further east I go, the more people say, so where do you live? And I say, I live in the San Francisco Bay Area. Oh, San Francisco, been there. I'm actually more like the Oakland side of things. I go, oh, the rough side. I'm like, have you been to San Francisco? Uh, and uh, I don't think so. You rode the trolley. Uh, it's, like, it's, like, it's like going to Disneyland and saying, like, we went to L.A. Um, no. no, you really didn't. Uh, it's called Fisherman's Wharf. It's like got its own zip code. Uh, but, you know... To, to, live, to, to live and to stay in Oakland is to say, as a Christian, uh, I, is to honestly, and you don't even think about it, is to not be afraid of what other people consider a great darkness. People think about it. Any time you, like, you cross the Rockies, be like, Satan lives here. That's like, people think that. The more I go east, the more people are shocked that like, there are Christians on the West Coast. And so, so, you know, the stories, just briefly, you know, like this church intentionally moved into a neighborhood. This is the building you chose. You chose this. And it's a gorgeous building. But it was like crack 
everywhere around you when you got here. And you were like, yeah, my people. Uh, you get this. It's, it's in your DNA. And so I, I'm not going to say anything this morning that's going to be like revolutionary or revelatory to you. Hopefully this is deeply encouraging. Uh, the other aspect of, it, uh, of your engagement has been, you know, someone will say words like human trafficking and, uh, and, and, and talk about, you know, girls being trafficked for sexual exploitation. And, and that's no longer shocking to you. It's, it's frustrating and saddening. But I, I just I taught a short series recently on a Christian response to, to, to disaster. And, and you guys do this, that it's, it is, yes, I understand that it can be for a period shocking, but from the biblical perspective, it is not shocking that people do terrible things to one another. Can I get an amen? We know this. Sadness is, a, is perhaps a more uh, responsible, more Christian response to disaster in the world. Let's not be shocked, and you're not shocked. People talk about the trouble in the world. You're not shocked by that. And you, because you're not shocked, because your sadness is your sadness, you, you can move with humility into engagement with these things, and you do. Uh, and so uh, whether it's you know, with local or global initiatives, you guys have been involved. You guys have been invested. And so be encouraged, uh, as Paul would have encouraged one of his churches, uh, be encouraged that the Spirit has moved and continues to move in very specific, very strategic, and very noticeable ways among you as a congregation. I just want to support and, and teach into that and support and, and, and uh, yeah, kind of get behind what you're doing. So here's this story. And uh, I'm, the slideshow, do we, are we engaged back there? Do we have a thing? I'm here in a lot, a lot of ways on behalf. If you go to that first slide, there should be a big, there it is, bam! Um, I get to partner with, I don't, I'm not on staff, but I get to partner with an organization called Compassion International that really gets this notion of missionality and has for the last almost 60 years where they figure, where are the darkest places in the world? Where are the most broken places in the world? Where are kids suffering? Uh, and they move into those places and partner with churches that have not left those areas and support those churches to change the landscape uh, financially, emotionally, and, and particularly spiritually in the 26 uh, most uh, uh, impoverished nations in the world. Uh, this is what Compassion does. Uh, and so um, I'll be talking about Compassion, and, and a number of you guys actually sponsor kids through Compassion. And so we'll have an opportunity later on for you to continue to practice what you already do. Uh, some of you uh, who already do can choose to sponsor another child or whatever. Uh, but some of you who may not have, this is a great way to practice something that's central to the DNA of, uh, uh, of Regen. So this is that story that, you, that was just read from the scriptures, and I'm, I'm going to title this sermon, uh, if you go to the next frame, Beware of Eunuchs in Chariots. Uh, and, and again, depending on how much further east I go, this is funny or not. Uh, the closer I get to UC Berkeley, uh, more people tend to go, yeah. <laughs> He's on Durant, like, every Wednesday. Uh, Yeah. Um, so this is what I'm going to do with that. So I, I'm going to I'm going to teach I'm going to I'm going to tell the story that you just heard, and then I'm going to march through it and say, hold off on the slides for the time being, and then I'll, I'll move you through the slides in a minute. So this is this is the story we just we just heard. This is the account we just heard from Scripture. Philip, who's a Greek fellow, which means he's a handsome man. <laughs> I had a I had a Greek roommate when I uh, like uh, for the first few years of, of being a, like a single man out on my own, and, a, uh, and his name was Stavros. 
And it was like the most frustrating thing about having a dating life at all. It's like I would meet a girl and then she'd meet my roommate. Uh, and like that, then that was generally the end of that relationship. He's a handsome Greek, they're just handsome people. So uh, he's a handsome member of the early church, uh, so, which means that he is a person who, is, who has been encountered by the spirit of Jesus Christ. And he is learning to live among the people of God. And very particularly, he's learning to listen for the voice of God. And, uh, the, you know, it, it was previous to this. Like, people didn't hear from God regularly the way they started to with the Spirit moving among the church. It was pretty unprecedented in, in, in the Spirit's history with his people. That just, ye average homeboy would hear from the Lord. And so it was this odd thing. And Philip hears, <laughs> hears the Spirit of the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord says, go south. So, so Philip hops up and starts headed south. And as he's headed south, he comes across an Ethiopian eunuch in a chariot. And when he sees the Ethiopian eunuch in a chariot, you know, as happens, you just kind of down the road and you see one, uh, he, he, the Lord speaks to him again. It says, go to this chariot and stay near it. So he goes to the chariot and he's standing near it long enough to hear that the, the, the eunuch in the chariot is reading from the prophet Isaiah. And he's not just reading from anywhere in the prophet Isaiah, but the prophecy he's reading from is a very specific prophecy, hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus about Jesus Christ, who Philip's life has just been rearranged by. And so Philip speaks and he says, um, do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch says, how can I possibly understand this unless someone explains it to me? And so Philip starts chatting with him about like this person, Jesus. You've I mean, you got to know about this stuff. And so the eunuch invites then Philip to get in the chariot. And as they're heading down the road in the chariot... They come across some water, and I love this, one of my favorite moments in Scripture. Because <laughs> what the Scripture says, they came across some water, and then the eunuch says, look, water. Uh, so in case you didn't get it the first time, uh, they came across some water, and the eunuch says, hey, there's water, let's baptize me. And they go down, and they baptize him, uh, Philip baptizes him, and then the rest of the story, the reason I'm not telling you, like, the rest of the story begins with Philip disappearing into thin air, which is like a completely different sermon. Uh, and so we won't go. So this, this is the account that we just heard. And it can be one of those things, like I said, it's just like you read it and go, oh, that's really, that's really fascinating. But the more you dive in, like I said to Scripture, the more you're taken back by exactly what just happened and exactly what was just said. So let's go, and, and I'm going to begin with this before I dive into this thing. It's like a little sermonette within the sermon, and this is just something I think is happening among us uh, as a church in general, at, like the people of God. This is, the, this is the instruction that, that Philip hears from God. He's, he, he hears from the Spirit of the Lord, go south. That's it. Go south. End of transmission. That's it. Just head south. Does that not sound like an incomplete instruction? It does. And guess what? It always does. When God gives instruction to people, he almost never, if ever, gives you the whole story. Because he doesn't like what we would do with it if he did. Can I get an amen? amen? In fact, Philip doesn't hear another instruction from the Lord until he's down this road. Go south, Philip just obeys. Here's the key principle. He just obeys the Lord. Go south. He heads south. And it's not until he has obeyed that first instruction that the Lord speaks to him again. And he, and he comes across this Ethiopian eunuch in a chariot, and the next instruction is, go to the chariot and stay near it. The Lord does not say, head down this road, you're going to run into a guy I want you to talk to. He just said, go south. And I have this real strong impression, I see it among a lot of the guys, I get the disciple. People were waiting years, months, years, 
to hear from God again. And we gripe that God has been silent for years. And what I come to find out is for so many of us, we have sat on an instruction we received from the Lord years ago. Months ago. We've not done what he asked us to do when he spoke the first time. And God does not play the game of keep talking until I say something you like. Why would I speak to you again? Unless I know that you can be entrusted with the things I impart to you. If you're not going to do what I ask, then this is no longer a conversation. And when you're ready to dive in, when you're ready to enter in and to do the things I've asked you to do, then this conversation will continue. Can I get an amen? This is how this works. Too many of us are sitting in silence waiting for God to speak again. And the Lord is sitting right next to us saying, what are you going to do about what I said the first time? That's the end of the mini-sermon. So the rest of the sermon. So this is the instruction. He sees the Ethiopian in the chariot. If you go to the next frame here, he says this. The Spirit of the Lord said, go to this chariot and join it. Here's why I love these words. It's very, very, like, you pause and pay attention. The NIV translates this, go to this chariot and join it. This is, I love it because this is not the language of agenda. This is not the language of mission as we often understand mission, where you go and you get the job done and get out. Go to and join. I had a young life leader walk into my life when I was 12 years old. I showed no interest in Christ at all. Through my junior high school and my high school years. I was not interested in Jesus. At all. I'd seen people who were interested in Jesus. I didn't want that for my life. This guy is in my life through that time. And it's not until after my senior year of high school that I look at Dave and I think, all these stories you just told about this, this God that doesn't quit on people, you just lived that for six years. Maybe that might be true. This guy walked in my life. He came to my chariot and joined it. And it was never something Dave said that convinced me that Jesus was Jesus, that convinced me that God loved me. It was that he was there six years later. It was that he came to my chariot and joined it. If we know anything about American cultures, they is, is you know, Ameri- we know the story. You know what I mean? 90% of people in America call themselves Christians, say they pray. Really? Fascinating. Do we know the story? Sure, we might know the story. But the story in and of itself doesn't change lives. The story in action changes lives. In other words, just like Christ, the idea of Jesus doesn't change lives. It's the person of Christ. Christ incarnate. It wasn't just the spirit hovering over the waters, but God dwelt with his people. And that's what set history right. The word made flesh. Go to and join. Don't just go and get the job done and get out. Go to and join. And notice this, this Ethiopian eunuch in a chariot. This is, talk about a cultural divergence. Greek is, you know, Philip is this Greek guy and there's an Ethiopian eunuch who's got all kinds of crazy cash. This, I mean, they have nothing in common, but that God has called them together. And I'll come back to that thought in a second. Go to and join. The next instruction he gets as he's standing there, Philip heard him uh, reading the prophet Isaiah. Such an important principle, I think, for us to grasp. That the word of God was active and alive in that place before Philip got there. Can I get an amen? It was there. It was already there. God is active and alive before you show up in that place. It's not our job to, like, to put the word of God in a bag and deliver it to people. 
If that's what we think about God, we're not thinking about God correctly. God is active and alive in that place. Two quick ones. I was at a, um, I was invited to, to lead songs, uh, to lead worship at this at this conference. This was a bunch of years ago, and uh, and I got to the and I got to the conference center, and they had these banners up, and they they had hired this guy who was actually a fantastic teacher, and they had this banner of this teacher, and he had the head mic on, and and he was like. Like that in the picture, and it said, bringing the word of God was this person, and it was like, bam, that flashy thing. And then it said, and then it had this tiny little picture of me off in the corner, this awful picture of me, I think from high school, I had a mullet. And, uh, and it said, bringing the worship, Justin McRoberts. And I was like, bringing the, bringing the worship. Crap, I forgot to pack it. Uh, like as if I could just pack up the worship and bring it with me. And like, like if the guy doesn't show up, then we won't have any worship, because he had it with him. Uh, and like, you know, it, you know, worship would have happened or would be if the people engaged and I could sing the song. We know what I'm, where I'm going with this. The Word of God is alive and active where? Absolutely everywhere. God is active and alive everywhere. I did a covers record. This is the second part of this little bit. Uh, I did a covers record a couple years ago and I covered a, a, a song by the band Nine Inch Nails. Some of you guys don't know Nine Inch Nails. Uh, Trent Reznor... Early, uh, late 80s, early 90s, uh, regarded at the time as, as uh, an enemy of the church, in all honesty, because he said some stuff about, and rightfully so, like in, in some ways, he said some stuff about the church and about culture that was pretty hard to hear, and he was wrong about some of it. And this, this, this song called uh, Head Like a Hole, very specifically. Um, and what he said, what, what he was doing, he, he was talking about, you know, if, if God is this God who is married with political and, and financial power, then then that's not a God I want to have anything to do with. And that's what the song was about. And when I listen to the song, this is what I hear. I hear the prophet Amos, who looked at the people of God and said, you are married to political power and then the power of wealth. And in so doing, you have compromised the power of the Lord. But who in Trent Reznor's circle of people had the courage to go to Trent and say... What Christian had the courage to go to Trent Reznor and say, when you wrote that song, you sounded like the prophet Amos? Who had the courage to go to Trent Reznor and say, I see something of God in what you're doing? How different our conversations would be with people on the other side of cultural barriers if instead of like believing that we've got to get them on our side of the cultural line, we would question ourselves and wonder, what of Christ can I see on that side of the line? That I could begin with the notion that God has been there before I got there. And I can say, hey, do you, like, do you see what God's doing in your life? How different a conversation is that with your neighbors, with your family? This is the conversation, this is a truly missional conversation. The Word of God is alive and active there already. At some point, I am going to trip on that and break my face. Um, so go to, go to the next slide. This is the next thing, next thing that happens. He asks him, do you understand what's happened? Do you understand what's going on in this scripture? Here's him reading. Do you understand what you're reading? How can I possibly understand this unless someone explains this to me? Which sounds incredibly familiar if you've ever read the Old Testament at all. Uh, like you're reading through this thing and you're like, I'm going to need some help with this. And we get to, the, you know, this is, you know, stands against this very strange individualistic notion that somehow you're just supposed to be able to get into the Bible and, and figure it out. And Christianity is not that way. It's a communal religion. We need one another. Here's the other aspect. It's not even just about the scriptures. We are bad interpreters of our own lives. Can I get an amen? How many times have you thought you knew what was going on with you? 
and were so wrong, it was painful, literally. Do we not need people to speak into our lives and say, this is what I think is actually going on. Actually, I think you're really good at this, this, and this, and you keep beating yourself up about that. I actually think you're really good at it. Or, hey, bro, um, I know you think you're really good at that, but um, you're really not. Uh, you know, I got friends like that. I got friends like that, like, hey, man, I know you love playing guitar. Uh, but I don't think that's what God's doing with your life. Um, thank you. Uh, we, we're bad interpreters of our own lives, and the thing is, we're not intended to interpret our own lives. We need loving, caring, committed people. People who've said to us, that chariot, I'm going to join it. People who've joined our chariot and are there long term, people we can trust to speak into our lives and help us understand what is God actually up to, because we're bad at interpreting this. How much more so if you were, say, a five-year-old child growing up in northern Uganda, and you don't eat every day, and you're just supposed to believe by default that there is a caring, loving God in the world who considers you a son of his. Would you not need the consistent, committed, present voice of the people of Christ to say, regardless of your environment, regardless of your history, regardless of your own self-analysis, you are a child of the living God and you are worth my time. We need the voices of the people of Christ in our lives. We need it. How much more so children who've grown up with disaster and darkness around them, who don't eat every day, who don't have their parents, who don't have any members of the family because they've lost them to HIV AIDS. They need our voices to speak value into their lives. Go to the next frame. And as he's speaking... He's, 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 Philip is, is talking to him and, and, and he's, he's explaining, hey, this is, this is this person, Jesus. He proclaims the name of Christ. This is, you know, and we're reorganizing our lives around this person. He's resurrected from the dead. This is what this looks like. He, and, and as he's talking, this is the next line in the progression. He invites him to get in and sit beside him. Hear the progression here. God says, go south, completely nebulous. When he gets close to the chair, the Lord says, go to and stay near. And the longer he stays there and begins to speak and engage and follows that commandment, then the next instruction comes, in fact, through the mouth of the person that he is sent to. It is, get in and sit beside. Go south. Go to, stay near. Get in, sit beside. Strange, and this is not a theological statement. This is just sort of one of these strange cultural realities. Truth of the matter is, most of the time, you will be invited into someone's heart before Jesus is. I invited Dave Beckwees, my young life leader, into my life because I wanted him in my life. I didn't really, wasn't so sure about the Jesus thing. But once I invited him into my chariot to sit beside me, he continued to proclaim the name of Christ and say, I'm in here because Christ sent me. I'm in here and you like what you see in my life because Christ is making my life. And if I had trusted him enough to invite him into my life, maybe I might trust him enough that the things coming out of his mouth are actually true. And this is exactly what happens with the, with the eunuch. Somewhere down the line, the eunuch says this, and I love this line. Go to the next frame. What is to prevent me from being baptized? Listen to the language. What is to prevent me from being baptized? This is not what the eunuch says. The eunuch does not say, you've convinced me. 
He doesn't say that was a strong case you just made. He says, what is to prevent me from being baptized? In other words, and I think this is a truly biblical perspective, Jesus Christ does not need us to make a case for him. Can I get an amen? He is the Lord of the universe. He is the God of all things. He spoke creation into being, and when it went awry, he has set it back. He was crucified, dead, buried. He is raised from the grave, and now is the head of the church. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made. This is the God we're talking about. He doesn't need us to make a case for him. What he needs for us to do is to remove from people's lives the obstacles that keep them from seeing how good, how wonderful, how powerful, and how present he is. Some of those hang-ups, for a lot of my friends, some of those hang-ups are, folks, are, are things that, like they've got serious, honest, intellectual hang-ups. Well, let's have a conversation. But I'm not going to go into that conversation and think I've got to come up with a good argument. Because it's not my job to make an argument for Jesus. He doesn't need me to. He doesn't need lawyers. Homeboy does not need lawyers. He needs me to trust that he is who he is. And that the truth will be revealed because he's the truth. That's how we engage in these conversations. What's to prevent me? For a lot of people, it's hard to believe in the goodness of God if you don't eat every day. It's hard to believe in God if you're a poor person. It's hard to believe in God if you're living with HIV AIDS because you were born with it. It's hard to believe in God in a dark world. And our role and responsibility is not to make a case to these people, but to remove from them the obstacles, whatever they are, so that they would see the goodness of God. For a lot of people, it's poverty. And that's what compassion does. Compassion moves in and says, there's God here. And I love why they do this. They partner with the local church because Christ is already present. He's already there and has changed the lives of people. So let's go to where Jesus has already been moving with people, come alongside these folks and continue to help them remove these obstacles from people's lives. One million children in the Compassion, Compassion Sponsorship Program because they've come alongside churches and the power of Christ has multiplied their effort. Um, let me, I'm going to end with a, with a, with a quick story. Um, my wife and I um, uh, sponsor five kids. One of the kids we sponsor, if you go to this frame, next frame here, is a kid um, named Zablon Omondi. Um, my, that's my wife and I. We're the uh, white ones. Uh, <laughs> and uh, in case you were confused, like he's darker in that picture. Um, so Zablon's there between us. Um, in the in the picture, he's he's 18 years old. He's he's 20 now. He'll be graduating out of the program this year. It's going to be kind of rough for us, to be honest with you. Um, we got to go to Kenya to visit him. He lives in a slum outside, slum outside Nairobi that is, uh, it's, a, it's a half mile wide and a mile long. There are a million people living there. Um, there's literally, there's sewage running down the middle of the street. There's no plumbing. There's no electricity. Um, and it's, it's an awful, awful, awful place. It's dark. It smells. It's, it's bad, bad news. But look at the look on this kid's face. Because Christ has moved on his life. Um... We got to hang out with him for, for a day and a half. Uh, Compassion afforded me the, 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 the opportunity to do this because I get to speak on, uh, and just honored, honored, honored to go do this. And for the last six years leading up to this moment, he would sign off all these letters and he would say, love, your son Zablon. And I thought that's a really cute thing to say. That's a really nice sentiment. Love your son, Zablon. And as we hung out with him and we looked through these letters, we had been sponsoring him for 10 years at the time. 
we looked through these letters and, were, and had these conversations. We were having conversations that we'd actually been having for 10 years about his village, about his family, about his sister, about his dad, who we knew had a severe drug and alcohol problem, and about, like, we knew him. And, and it began to kind of sink in, like, this whole idea of him being a member of the family wasn't maybe just such this cute little thought, but maybe there's something true about that. That we'd gotten this kid's chariot, we had joined his chariot, maybe there's something of family uh, involved in that. So we spent the day with him, and then we had to, we had to obviously head home, because I live here, um, when we got home, we got a notification. If you see the guy on, on my, immediately on my left, that's Sablon's father, who in this picture is, is blasted drunk. Uh, he, was, he was intoxicated uh, or high the entire time we were there. And he would escape and come back, and he would have done something else. Any money he did find, we have no idea where he gets his money, neither does Zablon. Uh, any money he gets, he spends on drugs and alcohol. This is something that's common to poverty. We know this. When we got home, we got a notification from the Compassion Sponsorship from the, from the program that Zablon's dad had been killed. He was intoxicated, tried to cross a highway, and was hit by a truck. We hopped online and immediately wrote. Now, which is one of the things that's unique about this, the sponsorship program is when you, when you sponsor a child with compassion, um, like out back of the back table, there are a bunch of these packets. So this is Angel, and this is Ali. And nowhere else in the world do these packets exist. It's not a program where, like, you and, like, some people from Canada, because who can trust the Canadians? Uh, uh, we have an amen. That's amazing. Uh, when you sponsor a child uh, uh, with compassion, that's your relation. You and this child. And it's letters that you write back and forth. Because, like I said, programs don't change people's lives. People change people's lives. Uh, and so we're right, we, we hopped online and started writing. And it's so sorry for your loss. We're praying for you. And immediately he wrote back. And if you go to the next frame, my wife keeps all of, uh, of his letters in a book. Just like all our kids, they have, there's a book where all these letters are in, in order because we saw that with the kids we sponsor. They keep everything we've sent in order. And on the left-hand side uh, is a letter that he wrote that utterly changed my life and my wife's life for all of eternity. You have those moments where you go because you were sent. And you show up and the whole time you're thinking, I'm being sent because I have something to offer this person. And every time you go to be a blessing, you find out the same thing. You will be blessed. This is what he writes in this letter. If you go to the next frame. I was sad that my father died. But I know I have a father in heaven now. This is a kid who, when he entered the program, did not know Christ. He received Jesus about three years before this letter was written. Do you know that you too are as a father to me? You have provided for me and taken care of me. Here's what he doesn't know as he's writing this letter. My wife and I have been married for ten years when, when, when this letter was written. And we were dead set that we were not going to have kids. I was positive. I'd seen kids. Uh, <laughs> not, not my bag of chips. Uh, part of the deal was like I, lo- I had lost my father to suicide in 1998, uh, and it's a big deal to be a dad. And what arrogance it would be in me to just believe that I would be a good dad because I want to be. The world is full of bad dads. Can I get an amen? I mean, come on. 
It's a huge deal. So I settled. I'm like, I don't need it. I don't want it. And this letter, these words, got in me. Like words of life do. And started chewing away at this casing I had around my heart. And by the time they were done chewing, they were in the middle of my being. And I realized, as I read over this letter for the hundredth time, I want that. I want that for my life. I want to be a dad. I had convinced myself that I did not. I had spoken words of death to myself so often that I would convinced myself of them. That that part of my life, any bit of that desire was simply dead. I didn't want it. And this 19-year-old kid spoke words into my life that rearranged my spirit. And if you go to the next frame, this is, these are the fruits of that labor. Um, that's my boy. His, uh, his name is Asa Jonathan. Jonathan was my father's name. Uh, and Asa is a Hebrew word that means healer. And what the name means to me, the name it means to my, to my wife is this, that this cycle of chaos, brokenness, and darkness that is riddled throughout my father's history ends with me. In the name of Christ. I got in the chariot with this kid because God sent me down a road and I ran across him. And I thought my responsibility was to speak words of life into his life, but again, what we find out is he was there before I got there. And if he was there before I got there, then there's something of him that he wants to offer me when I arrive there as well. I want to afford us all this opportunity, if you go to this next frame, to live into this, that it is never the strong that save the weak out of their strength. Instead, we are drawn together by our weaknesses and both saved by Christ. And that, yeah, that's me, my quote, if you're writing it down. Um, so I want to I offer us um, this opportunity. A lot of you guys have made this decision specifically with compassion. Here's what I don't want to do, and I'm, and I'm not trying to do today, is I, I don't, don't want to sell you on compassion. I don't like selling things. Um, this is a fantastic way to, to continue to practice this notion, th- this idea of, of what it looks like to actually live like Christ, to live as missional people, whatever that, however you want to you know, frame that. And that it's very personal. You, choose to, you, ch- you walk up to people, you choose to get in a chariot with a specific child. On the back, there's really simple paperwork that the volunteers, there's a table here and a table by the cafe that you can, and they'll help you fill this stuff out. Don't do this simply because you're moved emotionally. Um, if you may be moved emotionally. Uh, emotions don't last. Um, move, do it because the Spirit of God has moved on your life and, and is speaking to you and saying this is something that he wants you to do because the Word of God lasts forever. Uh, and if we respond to it in our lives and the works that he begins in our lives last forever. Um, let me pray for us and then move on the rest of the morning. Lord God, you are good. Continue to move on our hearts to believe that 
with the whole of us, that you are good, that we would trust you, and that when you speak in these incomplete instructions like go south or stay here or hang out with that person or sponsor a child, these incomplete things that like, what is it for? We want to know the end result. When you speak, we would simply trust you that you're good enough that if we obey the things you ask us to do, not only will good come of it for our lives, but good will come of it for the world and we'll have your name written all over it and we get to be a part of it. May we believe first and foremost in your goodness and that out of your goodness, you will not let your world continue to be a broken, beat up world but you will continue to draw and reconcile the world to yourself. We want to be a part of that. Here in Oakland, in our very specific neighborhoods, in our own households, and around the world. Thank you for your goodness. Amen? As he's making his way up here, here I'll, I'll wrap this thing this way. Normally when someone gives a pitch like this, they, they, they begin with the statistics about how jacked things are. And things are to some degree jacked. I want, I want you to know this because you've been a part of this for seven years. Um, in the, in the mid-90s when we talked about kids uh, dying of, uh, of, of preventable diseases, you had, you had to say that uh, 40,000 kids died every day from preventable causes. As I stand here before you today, I can't say that 40,000 kids die every day because 19,000 kids. We've cut that number in half, and you've been a part of that. Cut that number in half. And if that doesn't move you, maybe this will. We used to say that 50% of the globe lived in extreme poverty, less than a dollar a day. People who, at any given moment, would, lives would utterly fall apart or could die in any given moment. 50% of the globe. As I stand before you today, that number is literally 25%. And it's because we have stopped going to and dropping it off and getting out. We've moved to it We've moved to these places of darkness believing that he's there and we have stayed. It's changing. There will be a time, I promise you this, there will be a time, maybe while we are still alive, where we will not even have to use the words extreme poverty because it won't be a reality. Your God is reconciling all things to himself. Be a part of that. 